morning, everyone. We are, unbelievably, in week nine of our series of one anothering soul care in the body of Christ. So it's been a topical thing. We've been here over the Bible, all sorts of different places. We've followed a model. And we arrive at week nine of ten, which means we pray for everybody in endurance for one more week, right? So next week we are going to wrap up, at least for now. So as we look... We'll do perhaps a little bit more of a summary next week of the, the three trees model. I've got it underneath the screen here, a little bit here. But we, we come to the very, very end of the model. We started it last week with the castle. And there are two castles because you have the thorn tree and you have the fruit tree. And in between is the cross. And all the same life events happen under the sun. But the fruit tree produces fruit because it's connected to the streams of living water that comes from Christ and overwhelms in you. It's an overwhelming overflow grace in your life. You get all you need and more. You get all that you need so you can give it away. And so we come to the, uh, the two castles, and one castle is you run there for refuge and you find it a dungeon. In the other castle, you get fed and overflow. And there is reality and there is joy. So the tale of two refuges. We are all refugees. We all run someplace. So, very, very, very quick, uh, I kind of left out most of the middle part of the graph. So, uh, there are two R's, you know, uh, after the three trees. The fruit and the thorns are words and actions that come out of your mouth. They, of course, reflect what you think of God and what you trust and who you treasure. And, uh, but they affect people this way. And God takes it personally when you're messed up in relationships because it tells you exactly where you are in growing with him. Paul Tripp, we've quoted him many, many times, several of his books. He said one class, and I think most of us wanted to walk out, you want to know a dipstick, if you will, into your engine to find out how you're really growing in grace? Just think about your worst relationship and how you actually want to show grace in that. That was convicting, so that's the kind of thing. Well, where do you run? Real refuge or futile refuge? And we introduced... The bad castle last week, and we talked about it as where you run for relief, uh, you, you end up being destroyed. The cure for it is the cross, and then you end up in the other castle for the rest of your life. One is escape from reality, the other one is moving into the reality in which Christ made you to run. Okay, this is 48 years ago, so it's grainy, but that's Lucy right there, my, my dear chosen one before. Uh, we had kids. So see how happy she is? <laughs> uh, there you go. And that's when we were going through. Uh, that's Dunsonburg Castle. And you can't see the back. It's sheer cliffs down the wall. Massive earthworks. The most incredible bulwarks you ever saw. And this is why Martin Luther wrote, A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Because at that time, they failed routinely. A good object lesson. Don't put your trust in princes or anything else created, for that matter, because they will fail you. This castle was conquered seven times in the War of Roses. Once when Lucy was there, because they all ran. (laughs) So, there you go. Once I said she was from New York, yeah, there you go. So, anyway, that's our castle picture. We left last week on slide five, so real, 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 real fast. Uh, Outward focus, the process of of the bad castle, and we talked about the good castle last week, it's kind of hard to describe the bad without talking a little about the the good, but when you go some places, 
It's where you run, and they often start with innocent pleasures, and then they just grow more and more until they life dominate you. No, that can be an outward focus, physical, emotional, relational, mental, all kinds of amusement, religious. And we cited two examples last week of that. Talk about that in a second. The real goals are relief. C.S. Lewis says, pleasure is almost always in our ability, but joy is not because joy is a gift. So, and then the illusory sense of that you're actually in control. Inward focus, adopting destructive acts, obsessive control, compulsive, cutting, and so forth. And then uh, we related three fun ones last week that this can happen any time in your life. So uh, I showed you uh, Paul Tripp's book, Lost in the Middle. I self-identify sort of as coming close to the age of a midlife crisis. I'm still in early, at least that's where I self-identify. But anyway, you know the story. Lost in the Middle is the name of his book. And we were joking in classes at Masters, like, somebody's got to write the book. Lost at the start. I give you the story about a young girl out of Bible college just in really deep depression that we had a chance to, to counsel. So she was lost at the start. And I gave you an example of lost in the lost late. Okay? I didn't include this last week, but I love this quote too. Again, from R.C. Spool. No sin is ever made any person happy. Sin cannot bring happiness. We had to talk about happenstance this morning, didn't we? But it can deliver pleasure. And when we confuse pleasure with happiness, we are open to all seductions of the enemy. So, good quote there. We ended, really, with a slight uh, gospel hope. We saw a video last week of um, a young woman, Emma Schrifner, in England, and how she was uh, almost died twice with anorexia. Um, is there hope? Is there gospel hope to save people? And by her testimony, we'll answer the two questions in a minute. Was she saved? And number two, can Christians fall that way and drift that way? Two questions we ended with last week. The first thing is, and this includes all sorts of sexual sins, all sorts of messed up things. And as such were some of you. One of the most beautiful phrases of hope in the Bible. Wouldn't you agree? But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Son of, and the Spirit of our God. In Pennsylvania last year, when we got to do this series, we often met in the afternoon, and all the young people got together, and we played Laura's story uh, of a transgender girl. It's really the story of two conversions. She went off into transgenderism, had all the disfiguring uh, surgery in that, and it's her mother and her performance religion, she got converted to the real gospel. And then so did Laura. Wonderful video. If you want it, I'll, I'll post it on the ARF website. We don't have time. It's much longer to, to view than the one I showed you last week. But yes, wonderful hope to the deepest of the deep. Christ's love is deeper still. So uh, access to the king's castle is through the cross. Then you gain the sustaining grace and power to stay there. Remember the example last week when we were going through the Old Testament verses? Run here, run here, then dwell, move in, right? Sustaining grace and power to stay there through the very same cross. I love that hymn. We sang it two weeks ago, He Will Hold Me Fast. In many ways, the cure and the prevention is the same. And it's not the castle, it's the cross. So we looked at uh, these two stories last week. I'll just summarize a little bit here. We showed a video, not a video, a slide the other day. That one nice thing about the model is it reminds you, like Ikea, with the X's on the instructions, they meant to do what? 
don't do that, right? It has a picture. Slap you, don't do it, right? There is one X right here, and it means that you can't go from here to where? Fruit. Fruit, okay. You can't go there, okay? Bernie Nadoff, who swindled millions of dollars from people, was one of the most gracious, nicest people in the world. And he was wicked. So um, you can't be doing this at home and fighting and yelling and calling each other's name. Walk in the door here and say, oh, we've had a wonderful week. We love you. Okay, you can't do that. Okay, uh, It's fake. It's plastic fruit. Remember how I said plastic fruit? And if I could find one and a stapler, I'd come. Can't do that, right? You got to go through got to go through the cross because it's a worship problem it's your heart okay? the other X we've never shown you before and it's this the other X is here and it referring to the, the bad castle and what's it reminding that you that you cannot do we not covered this so you got to think hard you can't go from that castle where Think about Emma's. I know you have seven whole days since you saw her testimony. After her first anorexia and she got counseling, put weight back on, she launched into another version of performance and rules to make herself pleasing to God. And what was it? She finished Bible college and launched herself into ministry. If you want to listen to her husband's testimony, he was in the same bad castle and didn't know the gospel. Either. You can't go from this one to here. You gotta go through the cross, okay? So, resist the temptation to do that. Now, you are screw tape. You know who I'm referring to? Yeah. If you know C.S. Lewis and screw tape letters, you're a demon. How will you interrupt this? How will you want to tempt people? Tempt somebody with jealousy. Yeah, uh, yeah. Oh, what is the somebody else something you don't have, and he loves you less than this other person, and yeah. that's not fair? Is that yeah, what you mean? that kind of thing. That, that kind of thing but dialogically, what it oh. would be, okay? Yeah, you got it right. Remove the cross. So that's our going to be our theme today. When you get over to the good castle, Satan loves religious people. He would love to have you have a form of godliness, but deny the power. So what he will do is do everything you can in the means of grace and life in the castle to disconnect you from the king, from grace. Do you see that? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Sometimes a diagram hopefully helps you. Last week we ended with a short example of two examples. Uh, the one was an example of a, a woman six, seven years ago before we left Pennsylvania. Wonderful Christian woman had a plain vanilla life. You know, like a vanilla milkshake at Ikea, but they forgot the whipped cream and cherry. You know, had a pretty nice life, no, nothing bad. And she got to be about 68 and she was lost at the end. And one day she saw this movie, and I didn't say anything good or bad about the movie. It's just that she saw it 22 times in about 22 hours, and it changed her life. And both of these women pridefully said, look at me, what I'm doing. And in this case, I'm going to save the 21st century church. It was a PCA church, one at a time. And they better do what I say, and the elders better do what I say. And they were judgmental, deceptive, all those kinds of things. Because when you latch on to that, they'll give your life meaning. 
Okay, so she drifted from Christ. She found a performance that made her happy and everybody else miserable. Emma's was a little bit more terrible story. So she went through two bouts of anorexia, and at the end of the first one, she said in both cases she, she, she would say that she was a Christian, but after she got through the first one, she just launched herself into Christian activity to do the same thing she did with starving herself to death. She was in control. She was going to save herself. She crashed again. And then she said she opened the Bible, found the real Jesus, the lion, the lamb, the one who died for her, and uh, wonderful testimony at the end. So the answer to the first question is, can a person end up there, stay there for a long time, and be a Christian? That's the second question. I would say yes more to the second question than the first. Okay? She had and was teaching a Jesus gets me into heaven and I make myself perfect after that. So if you didn't see the video, it's kind of hard to comment on it because I'm really talking about her situation where she went for years, nearly killed herself twice. And she was in a religion of performance and rules. She could never please herself and never please the God she thought was there until she repented of that and came to the real gospel. So I'm saying it's pretty hard, and most certainly in that circumstance, the answer would be, I think, I know you saw it last week of you who were here. What's the question again? Well, the question was, could a person hold to that view of the gospel and performance, Emma, for years and years and years and teach a false gospel that now she repents of and look back and say, but I was a Christian back then. No, okay. But could a person drift that way? Yeah, that's a different question. Yeah, it is a different question. That was her story three years ago in 2020, and what happened in the world? COVID, COVID right. Uh, she didn't go back to starving herself to death, but she did lock herself pretty well in a room for a while, scared to death, and she had to preach the gospel to herself again to get out of the room, okay? Because you can't be self-protective. Before she was self-promoting, and now she's self-protective. But the weakness of the heart, Jesus knows that we're weak. He knows that we're flesh. I'm glad that several of you here are reading Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland. Wonderful book at addressing the Jesus who loves you in exactly the way that your very, very weakness draws him closer to you so that you might be drawn closer to him. So, I love this song, and that is exactly where she went. Either great or small, nothing sinner, no. Jesus did it, did it all long, long ago. It is finished, yes, indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need, tell me. Is it not? Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. I don't know if we know the music to that song, but the words are wonderful. But again, I picked two examples, multiple examples last week. I tried to pick extremes. Right? They still qualified as life-dominating things that attract your heart. Life-dominating that ruined your growth in Christ and virtually alienated you from everyone around you. Even though many of these people, like the first woman, was still functional in her family and, 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 and her work, if she was working, she was ruining every other relationship, including the most important, because she shut herself out to the one anothering and her pastors. And uh, it was a sad situation when somebody gets so obsessed with saving a church because they saw a movie, and I'm not commenting on the movie. Okay? But that is your heart. That's where you can go. But I wanted you to leave it with gospel hope. Paul knew people 
And uh, I think there's wonderful videos of people who've got themselves into absolutely horrible, horrible situations and the gospel brought them out. Okay, what is a good castle? Well, it's on the other side of the map, obviously, right? Where we get all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's in the other castle. It has no dungeon. It does have a loving, disciplining father. Hebrews chapter 12. And it may be unpleasant, but it's not a dungeon where we grow up into the king. So, this is where we are being renewed in the spirit of our minds and put on a new self, the one created to God's likeness, according to God's likeness and strength, and righteousness, and purity of the truth, Ephesians 4. As we will see, the castle involves lots of things, including one another's soul care. So, here we are. Quick, quick summary between the two. Connecting. Isolating. I should have put a pause in there so you could fill in the other side. Wisdom. Foolishness. Constructive discipline. Destructive willfulness. Real joy. Superficial pleasure. Real strength. Illusionary ability to manage life apart from Christ. Delight-driven satisfaction. Deception-driven craving. Do you see that? Humble trust. Prideful self-effort. And I tried in those multiple examples to illustrate all of those. And that's the characteristic of self-examination. Am I in that castle or this one? Okay, I am delighted that the fact that ARF is looking into uh, studying this book. Yes? Can you distinguish or say more about the distinction between real real strength and illusionary ability? Yeah. Illusionary ability. I had a hard time understanding that until I actually started counseling some people who were on drugs. And one of the most vivid ones, just as a short little snippet here to give you an example, was uh, a man here, not in this church, but referred to another affiliate church of of ours, actually. And he came over, and uh, he was on multiple different drugs. Uh, He owned a business and said, uh, so why do you take these things? Why you really, really feel you have to have them? And the first one was relief, okay? Just take away the anxiety and stuff like that. But he had a big business, multi-million dollar business, and, and he said, I, I, can't, I, I gotta have this, you know, shot up each morning, or I can't function. I said, well, well, what do you mean function? Well, I can make deals. I, I, I have a sharpness of mind. Well, what's not in your mind? I never thought of it that way, okay? So what it was, it just shut everything out, gave you an illusion that you were in control. But what was not there was his wife, his church, the Lord, anything else. Do you pray about these things? No. Okay. Did you when you were not on drugs? Well, actually, I did think about it. You know, that kind of thing. Short answer there. And I finally started to realize what the drug was doing to you. It was giving you an illusion that you could actually function and get things done and get things done well. And it's an illusion. Anybody else want to comment on that or give an illustration? Ben. Because it made him feel like he was in control, but in reality he wasn't in control because he couldn't make himself think about things that he should have been thinking about. I mean, his output should have been trusting God with him, but not thinking about your wife, your kids, your family, your church, that's actually him being enslaved not to be able to think about it. It's really deception. I don't want to take drugs so I know what it feels like. It has passed my mind that maybe these people who have been on these things know. Uh, my, my really good friend, uh, another story, Brian Vance, 
from Pennsylvania. Uh, he's in, in, in Uganda now. He, Lord saved him like 30 minutes from killing himself up in, in uh, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Two, two of my friends literally caught him before he got the $500 pack. Of, he was going out with a blaze. And the Lord saved him. It took six, seven, 12 months and, and wonderful. He can explain these things a lot better than me. So I, I've often talked to him just to give a sense. How do you put this in words how you feel? Because he's gone through it. And it's like death warmed over. Well, apart from the drug part of it, I was thinking too that proverb says there is a way that seems, but the end is the way of death. It's, you, you have an illusionary ability. You think it seems right, but the end is the way of death. So to me, apart from the drug aspect, there's also this wrong thinking. Wrong thinking. Sometimes I, I, I do wish it's... Uh, so that's why I try to use examples that we've counseled, but examples on videos of people, because when you hear a story of somebody's coming back from transgenderism and gives the story of how the Lord saved them, it's uh, the common denominators there, and the common denominators are these kinds of things and how the grace brought them back. And uh, the lion, Emma said, the lion, Jesus is the lion. He's perfectly in control, but he's the lamb who died for me, and he buried all those things. In the, in the cross. And he is the Lord that can restore the years that locusts have eaten. Because she could just get overwhelmed by the fact that she taught so many people a false gospel for so long. I love it that we're going to be looking at this book. So basically, you got an idea here. I'm going to be talking about the habits of grace, or what many people over the years have called the means of grace. As, as, in essence, what we're talking about, about what happens and what is done with you and how you live in the castle, if you will. Okay? Uh, it's not a perfect metaphor, but the castle refers to far more. But uh, we talked last week that when we get from the New Testament to the New Testament, the word refuge falls away and another verb and metaphor comes into play. And it's from Jesus' lips, and it was what? Abide. Abide. And what is the metaphor? Divine. Divine. So again, what you have in concept here is the same thing going on, but a very, very Christological focus of Jesus is the castle. He's the castle of the king. And you come through the cross, and through the cross, and he changes you. He reorders your desires. He reclaims your identity in him. You're a new creature. And he reshapes your future, controlling the past, ruling the present, and commanding your future. That's the king. That's what we give testimony to here in our first, uh, first hour. You see? So, quick. He has three big categories. Bible, God's voice. What do you think is number two? We've done this this morning. Prayer. Prayer. Exactly. Thank you, Robert. So we don't have to go back, way back in our memory to think about what we're doing here. God's voice. Read, meditate, apply, memorize, act. We have prayer. God's ear. I'm kind of really preaching to some people who already love all of this stuff. That's why in the next slide and further, I'm going to talk about the dangers of how screw tape can take you away. God's ear. Public, private, and others with fasting. Throwing in great stuff there in the book. Fellowship. God's people is his third category. And graciously, I'm going to keep this short here, but this is the book by Don Whitney that a gazillion people for decades have read. And right at the beginning of his book, he graciously and lovingly says, I love Don Whitney. I believe he's still living. He's still teaching at Southern Seminary. This is the book everybody read. And he just graciously says, I love the book, love the book, love the book, but brother, you're desperately wrong on one thing. And that was the last one there. He has 
personal disciplines. Personal is not on the, the book, but it was basically personal disciplines, and he kind of left out the church entirely. And a bazillion brothers came to him for several decades and said, you're wrong, you're wrong, brother, you're wrong. So he finally sees the light, writes a new book, nobody reads it. Um, <laughs> public worship, sermon, baptism, and the supper. Now, Two very, very, very small points here. I'm glad we're going to be looking at this book. But number one, Mathis doesn't talk about the participatory nature of worship that we do here. So you're not going to find that in the book, and you'll find it sadly missing. But we'll read it anyway, right? Okay. Secondly, he's a little weak on my subject that we've spent nine weeks on, one another in soul care. He covers Hebrews 3, like Stephen David did several weeks ago. Um, Make sure that nobody has a sinful, unbelieving heart. That's a one another passage, and the verb is parakaleo. Remember that from week two? Well, can you remember that way far back there? Parakaleo coming alongside. And the other one was Hebrews 10. Um, it's a very positive uh, word. Uh, you know, uh, let's stir one another. There you go, one another up to love and good deeds. And, and the, the operative word there is parakaleo as well. Not forsaking the gathering ourselves together as a habit of some. And I'm going to talk about habit because he uses the word. Okay? He misses what I think is the number one passage. At the book, you'll scan all the way through. Nothing about 2 Corinthians 1. Nothing about 2 Corinthians 1 there at all. You're comforted by the God of all comfort. Then you turn around and give that comfort. You're either receiving or giving. And you give out of what you've received. You know? Remember those talks? Okay. Um, He's a little weak on that. But again, very, very minor points. Kind of really just emphasizes in the last chapter rebuke and correction. But pretty good. I am summarizing 33 pages. Stretch my neck out here. I read them multiple times. And I want to distill the most genius and wonderful and gospel-oriented and Christ-honoring thing he could say. In my words, okay. So I'm trying to read the first 33 pages and say, what does Mathis get about Jesus and the gospel that's wonderful? That you ought to have it etched in your mind if you leave now, you got the best point. Because his point, but in my words. Here it is. The transformative power of the various means of grace is the grace made effective in the life of a believer through the working of the Holy Spirit as the believer practices the various means by faith. Work out your own salvation for it's him who works in you both the will and do of his good pleasure. The key thing about any book is not listing the means but describing how they actually transform you. And the flip side, the dangers of how screw tape would take you away from that. The key thing is here that the various transformative powers lies in the grace and not the means. So, simple example here. Jesus said, Peter, come on out, come on out. Walk on the water. Right. And what happened with Peter as he got going? Ooh, this is pretty cool. I'm not thinking. Until we looked. You know what happened? You know the story. Think. And then he turned his eyes where? Jesus, right? So, the, is what the king of the castle tells you to do imperatives? Are they your duty? Yes. He commands you fly, and then he gives you wings. He commands you to walk on the water, and then gives you the ability to do what he commands. The power of the walking on the water was not in the walking, although you had to walk. 
Okay? The power of the walking on the water was in the Savior, in the grace, while you obeyed in faith. Do you see that? The Bible is just filled with wonderful stories that illustrate exactly what it teaches. So this is my summary here. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It's the surpassing worth that motivates you. Second is 2 Corinthians 3.18. As we all, so that's a kind of a personal testimony by Paul. This is how he writes to the Corinthians. And we all, with unveiled face, wonderful passage, because it refers to Moses and Christ. Oh, we could spend all day here. Can't do that. And I'm not Jeff Volker, so I can't do anywhere as good with that passage as he. But you know where we're going here, right? Old Testament, New Testament. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, this language, beholding glory, is a short form for life in the castle. What does John the disciple say at the beginning of his gospel? And we beheld his glory. Short form. Listen, we don't have love tanks that need to be filled up. If you listen to the biological psychiatry people, even the Christian ones, who say, what do you really need to do with your kids and with your spouse is serotonin and dopamine. So hug, kiss, dopamine, serotonin, you feel good, and that's Jesus working in you through chemicals. No! No, no, you don't need a, a, a serotonin. You don't need dopamine. You don't need love. You need glory. You have a glory tank. And I love the way Mathis describes that. You have a glory tank. You need to be drawn to your worshiper to something of surpassing worth. That's the means of grace in the grace. The grace is his glory. The grace is his power, his supremacy, his all-encompassing worth and power. This is my beloved son. Hear him. This is what brings Jesus close. The Word, the Spirit, and the people. The Bible, prayer, and His people working through the Spirit. Christ's grace to change your heart. Or, the way I put it, week after week after week here, one anothering is Christ-centered, Bible-based, heart-change goal. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about a couple arguing about money. Right? Got a big bonus, several thousand dollars. They were happy for five minutes and then arguing for five days, and they came for counseling. Well, it was a fictitious story. But one of the passages that we we're going to bring up to them was Luke 12, where Jesus describes a farmer who had a great bounty landing on his lap. Yes, but he died that night because of false worship. So Jesus says, and such will happen to everyone who is not rich towards God. The language of the man of the farmer said, I'm going to tear down these barns, build up bigger ones, and say to my soul, you know the story, don't you? He transferred his treasure to the gift rather than the giver, and his comfort for the days ahead to the barns full of good things, rather than trusting the Lord who gave him this harvest. Do you see what's happening there? What will change his heart? Jesus' final words, and such will be to everyone who is not rich toward God. He was rich towards you. The only thing that changes your heart is something of surpassing value. And when you see the surpassing value of the giver, you love to use the gift to praise the giver. That's what changes your heart. That's what you bring to everyday lives. When you realize that Jesus is active, present, and up to some good, 
whether you failed, didn't get into that college, you didn't get that job offer, you're looking at your future, trying to make a decision, any of the bad and the good that happens, Jesus is present and he wants you to have your heart revealed for him to be the one that you find your satisfaction and your trust in. David Mathis didn't really say a whole lot there, but man, he goes all the way through the first chapter, switching words all the way around. Testimony to the fact that a lot of our English words are hijacked. You know what I mean by that, don't you? Words like discipline. It's a good word. Tell any of your kids the word discipline, and what do they immediately think? <laughs> huh? You're in trouble. Now, that's not, it may include that, but that's not the root idea. So you see how already we got a little bit sidetracked there, right? Okay, but it's negative connotations in some evangelical circles. Anybody who grew up in the 50s and 60s would dare to discipline. Oh, man. So that dates me. Most of you don't even know that book, but it was the evangelical bestseller for a bazillion copies. Good book, except for when it's not. Okay? It misses the gospel in way too many places. Okay, spiritual. Good word? Find it in the New Testament? Sure. Romans 12. Your spiritual worship. Spiritual worship. How has that word been hijacked? Some people say, I'm not religious. I'm. What do they mean by that? Tell me, what do they mean by that? Yeah, right. Anybody else want to throw in a definition there? Esoterical. Yeah? So, okay, another word. Again, this is not to say we don't use them, but kind of have an awareness that they're hijacked. Another one is, okay, but more to personal experience. My summer. Habit. Oh, my. It only appears in the English translations in one verse of the Bible. Do you know where it is? Quoted it already about 15 minutes ago. Don't forsake the gathering together. Hebrews 10, as is the habit of some. The word there is actually ethos, from which we get the word ethnic. So, Sanco de Mayo, tacos, Indian Hyderabad curry, you know, that wonderful recipe. Okay, you got the idea. Habit. Okay, what, it's been hijacked by psychology. This is a quote from actually a biblical counseling book that just irks me badly. Our behavioristic world defines habits as regular, frequent practices that seem almost second nature. I don't like that. They liken it to muscle memory. They will use the biblical verses that talk about gymnasium. We'll talk about those in a second. And they'll say it's like riding a bicycle. Oh, you think hard, you think hard, you think hard. But once you learn how to do it, you don't think at all. It just happened. And now, the only uh, illustration I could... There's a little bit of that is true. You know Tim Tebow. He was asked, like, how do you deal with all this foul language in the locker room? And when people say the Lord's name in vain, he says, oh, I've got this habit. It's just ingrained in my mouth. My tongue just does it. He says, what is it? He says, as soon as they yell the Lord's name, he says, loves you. Well, okay, so maybe you could actually do that. That's a good habit. But I, I don't like that definition because the thorn is like that. You can sin unconsciously, quickly, repeatedly, by habit. On that side, the thorns, like weeds in your garden, they'll grow with no effort, no watering, no fertilizer. But on the other side, you need to work. I think the Christian life becomes easier, but never easy this side of heaven. You may have a response to heat that's gracious and kind, and you've practiced that. The hardest ones are if you're married, yeah, we've talked about that, haven't we? 
I don't like that definition, and I really don't think it fits with the Bible. But it's not my opinion. It's the Bible here, so let's keep on going here. Some Christian counselors use words like muscle memory and compare a habit to learning how to ride a bicycle. I've said that already, but it's biblical. Well, look at 1 Peter 1. Therefore, preparing your minds for action. Sounds pretty cool, right? And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. As obedient children, that's what we're talking about, obedience. Do not be conformed to the passions. Epithumia is a word that we've used over the last weeks. Of your former ignorance as he who called you is holy ah, in your conduct. Since it's written that you shall be holy for I am holy. Conduct flows from inward, mind, hope, passions to conduct. Do you see that? You need heart change. And most of the time you have to be conscious of what you treasure and trust to respond in grace. Does it become easier? Yes. Absolutely mindless habit? I don't think so. Other New Testament words, be devoted. Where do you hear that? Quick memory. Where do you hear about, and they were all devoted to, uh, where's that? What book? Acts 2. Acts 2, exactly. Where is this? What's in view? Okay, train. Okay, train. Oh, I shouldn't have done that one. Yeah, you didn't see it anyway. Train. Train is a good word. It's the word discipline. And it is the word that we get our word gymnasium from. But do you know what anachronistic is? Anachronistic is reading backwards into a word that you use later. And the meaning is not actually there. Okay? Just not there. So just because we got that word gymnasium, which is actually means to exercise naked. So I'm not going to have any pictures. I was going to shock anybody here. Because I'm not going to use it that way. Okay? Um, so train yourself for godliness. Not so. Practice. You do the exercise, and Hebrews 12, exercise by God's chastening. So training is a good word. You do it, God does it in you as well. We could unpack that for days. And Mathis does, so that's where we'll leave it for him. Imitate. That's a good word. Is a New Testament command linked to pattern, example, or model. So you see these words are linked. That's the verb. And the nouns are a pattern, or example, or a model. So in 1 Corinthians 10, you have uh, uh, other Old Testament believers in Philippians 3, uh, model or imitate Paul, and Titus, you be a model to young men, and uh, in 1 Timothy, imitate Jesus, right? So good word, lots of stuff there. To do that imitation to a model, do you have to study the model, yes or no? I think so. I, I didn't know how to ask that question to make it thought-provoking because it's like, okay, but I was going to ask it as a question anyway. You got the idea? Yeah, you got the idea. You have to think about these things. David Mathis, I love this line from his on page 19. The means are like patterns, or he likes the term, paths of his promise. That's a cool one. I'm memorizing that one too. Let's throw in that in a few prayers. Lord, show me your paths. Same direction, different feet. They land in different spots, but same path. Wonderful metaphor there, right? I would just say, as an illustration, Lisa and I go to a lot of estate sales, and they'll have actual oil painting. And they look pretty good to me. And she said, oh, that's terrible. <laughs> now, well, how do you know? It? Why is it terrible? That person knows nothing about human anatomy. I said, what are you talking about? And she said that, you study, a good artist studies anatomy and bones and facial features and muscles, and that shows up in the painting. Mm. She immediately can tell whether the person studied the model. And then the point about you've got to imitate, you've got to study what you're imitating. No.
So you see how the entire tone, tenor, verbs, nouns of the Bible just talk a different way than habit, okay? I don't want to overload that, but it's such a dominating thing today that you really, I think, have to think about that. Okay, now you are screw tape. We're going to throw monkey wrenches in here. The attack of the counterfeits, a form of godliness denying its power. So, unhinge the personal from the corporate. Now, the red letter is like, and, and you could just say from all the other means here, I put one in there, but I really mean to highlight the red words, okay? The only thing really important is the personal. You do it, and all the rest is like superficial, and you'll walk it away. What kind of Christianity is that? I'm going to give you the first one, then I think you're going to prime the pump. Lone Ranger! Ta-da, ta-da. Okay, you got the story. I won't do the tune that goes with it. I know it's way too many people here. Does that ache your heart? I think you know what I'm talking about here, right? Unhinge the spirit from the word of Christ, or all the other means for that matter. It's the spirit, just the spirit. I've got the spirit. I'm living in the spirit, and the spirit's leading me, talking to me. What kind of Christianity is that? Mysticism. One thing that I have to say is that um, even though I love Don Whitney here, he has way too many quotes in there from these guys and mystics here. It's not overt, it's not in your face, but I would not recommend any of those books. I would personally wish he didn't quote them. Anyway, there's another one. Unhinged worship from supper, baptism, and faith in Christ and everything else. This is a little bit more subtle, but a lot of people are getting their swim trunks on and swimming the Tiber, converting to, and if they're not converting to, they're acting like it anyway. Because they talk to you about, I just love the candles and the seance and the unexplicable Latin moaning of, well, you know what I'm talking about there. Yeah, it's, I, I couldn't find a better picture. Liturgical ritualism. Now, uh, in a footnote, Malthus talks about ex operator operato. That is a Latin phrase that says it operates in you without you doing anything. No faith, no thought. No imitation, no study, nothing. You just take the wafer and it happens. So I am here and I'm being made holy because I feel so good. You got the idea. There's another variation of that, which is very popular. You don't have to swim the Tiber in Rome to get there either. It is sensory event-oriented experience. Oh, man, I know so many Christian parents up in Pennsylvania that go like, once their kids go to some of these things, they find church boring because, well, you know, yeah. Man, I just feel, I worshipped. Okay, you got the idea. Okay, uh, unhinge the means from the spirit. What's that? Asceticism. And in, sadly, I think there's been way too many examples of that in some spiritual disciplines book. It's the kind of going back to Martin Luther when he was a monk and said, you know, I'm being convicted that I'm a little bit too attached to food and comfort, so I'm going to spend this winter sleeping on a board with one blanket. And that disciplining of my body will holify me. That's not his word, it's mine. But you got the idea there? It says, as if the transformative power is in you suffering. Now listen, Jesus uses suffering. So you get the subtleness here? We don't run from suffering, but we don't seek it either. And we don't inflict it either. Do you see that? 
Yeah, this is very, very subtle, satanic evil. Unhinged the means of the Bible, this last one, means from the biblical motive. What we've already said, delighting in Christ's glory and surpassing glory. Duty-driven, duty-driven self-effort. Uh, on his last page of his introduction, wonderful note there. And it's what we saw in Emma Shrivner's story. She had the God of her own imagination who she could never please. That deadly doing down. Right? Duty-driven behaviorism is deadly. It runs on pride. Look, I'm growing. It runs on guilt. Oh, no, I failed. Yeah. Again, questions? On number five, on the end, for meetings from the Spirit, would you include fasting in that? Yeah, see, yeah uh, I, I, I've not read in detail Mathis. I, I grabbed a book this week and go, oh, I've got to read what Mathis says on fasting. Uh, I trust he does a good job there, I, I, but I can't answer. Uh, that, that's a subtle area where Satan could just drift you away because it's using something bodily to focus your mind, I, I did read it fast, but I can't quote them well. Uh, anybody else want to talk about fasting? I rarely heard anybody over my 40-something years, uh, 50, 60 years as a Christian, actually preach on fasting. So, um, have you? Have you here? What's his name? Bethlehem Baptist, what's his name? John Piper. Piper has a thing on fasting. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess there's a balanced approach. Yeah. yeah. We have a handout here that uh, addresses this point. This was in Desiring God just a few weeks ago. And uh, David Mathis went to the seminary there, was in the church for years with John Piper. And there's another guy here, Scott Hubbard, there. And it's on exactly the subject, the redeeming discipline, how grace reforms our effort. Got a couple, a dozen copies here if you'd like to. Okay, so is biblical effort... What is biblical effort then? How should we understand the training exercise in 1 Timothy and Hebrews 5? If sanctification involves effort, how do we keep from duty and behaviorism? Number one, train yourself for godliness. Bodily training is some value. He's talking about the physical body. But this is spiritual training, First 4. And then here, in the key passage of Hebrews 5, look at this. Oral calls of God, unskilled in the work of righteousness, for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice. And the key word there of powers of discernment is sensory organs. And what are they? Go back to seventh grade biology here. What is a woman? No, no, wrong question. Well, what are the neurosensory? Eyes? There's no So the image in the New Testament is not muscles. So that, I did triple jump, so you, you run and run. Oh, man, it's a lot of work to pace the speed so that you jump at the right moment and boom, land on the, uh, you know, land on the sand and go, yay! You know, personal best or worst, whatever. Uh, no, it's not that. It's training uh, like ear training in music. So what we're going to do here now is have a little fun. It is not gymnasium, naked or closed, on the left. It's Ear training, a different model and a different example. Here's our last slide. I'm going to have a little fun here. Now, I was, shock of shocks, a music major for two years at Moody Bible Institute. Then I switched to theology and things went down from there. Except other people said it's because I met Lucy and the rest of the story and we're still in counseling. But you, you got the idea. 
you know, I was two years a music major, and it was wonderful things I learned. I loved it. I learned a lot of disciplines. And when you play music and say, okay, hum the alto part. So, oh, yeah, okay, fine, right. You not only open it up and sing that part, but you can hear it. You had to train your ears from constant practice. And so, okay, we're going to have a little fun here. This is simply for illustrative purposes and metaphor only. Okay, number one, I'm going to play something for Johann Sebastian. Oh, you know who this is, right? Johann Sebastian Bach. And I'm going to play something that he wrote. And I want you to do the, the you, know, you, you know, the game, name that tune. So I'm going to ask you, I'm going to just play the first eight notes. And you'll get it and you tell me the tune. Okay, then it keeps on going. Now, okay, since you know that song, name that tune. And it was a trick question. I'll do it from here. You don't know it, do you? Maybe some of you do. The trick here is that that was not the melody. So when we, when we do, uh, praise God from whom all blessings flow. If I played the bass line, you wouldn't understand the tune. Play the melody, you know it right away. Because in the Western thing, we listen to the melody, we remember it. If you've heard, praise God from whom all blessings flow a million times, and heard the bass line, you didn't remember it. But you enjoyed it. Don't we enjoy harmony? Alto, tenor, bass, wonderful things there. They lift the, t the song, they give it richness, warmth, and the bass line especially, if it's a strong bass line, what does it do to the music? Spills it. Yeah, yeah. And also if it's on an organ, it's the big pipe, not the little tiny ones. So if you're close to it, it just shakes, right? So you can feel it like a muffler going down. Oh, that guy's going 20 versus two, okay? You can kind of feel it. So it drives it along. The bass line has a really interesting function. My trick was that that was the bass line. So now that you know it's the bass line, you can tell me what the song was, right? No, because that's not what you remember. But I'm pretty sure that some of you have heard this, because back in the Broke days, they often wrote a whole series of songs, and this guy, Bach, wrote 39 variations for a guy named Goldberg. And it's, that's the bass line. He did all 39 on that bass line. Now, okay, I think you've heard it. So here's a little bit of the very, very first one. Okay, sound familiar to anybody here? I think most of you have probably heard the opening. Just sort of like uh, da 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 da, you know, the first couple of notes of another famous piece, right? So you've probably heard that before. Okay. And the illustration here, and we'll end with this, is a test. What if the goal of your Christian life is to learn by constant use to hear the bass line? So you can discern what is Bach and who isn't. Okay? I'm going to teach you to recognize the bass line. So the third one is, here you go. I'm going to sing it. Well, la, 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 la. I took two years of music, and you're a perfect audience. You've learned the bass line. Da, 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 four. 
and then da 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 and then down da that's it that's the baseline you're wonderful students i won't say anything about my teaching skills because i want to remain humble but anyway now that you've learned i'm going to play you the final test and we're close thank you for your patience today but i'm going to play three pieces of music only one is a bach goldberg variation so to pick the three one out of the three you have to hear the bass line are you ready here we go heard enough of that one okay here's the next one behind door number two Okay, okay, that's number two. And now are you ready for the toughest one of all, the last one, and then we'll close. Okay, Lucy put me up to putting that one in there. Okay, that was for comic relief. So you can laugh and make me feel better here. Okay, of the very first two, which one was a Bach Goldberg variation? Number two, because you could hear the bass line. Jesus, by constant repetition of the oracles of God, knew his flesh in the desert. He knew the temptations of reality. He knew his father's purpose in testing. He knew his father's word was sufficient. He knew Satan's devices. And he answered with the word for the glory of God and became our savior because he discerned and answered because through constant youth, he knew. Do you see that? If Jesus in the desert responded to temptation with the word, that wasn't a habit, then how much more us? This message was produced by the New Testament Reformation Fellowship, reforming today's church with New Testament church practices. Permission is hereby granted for you to reproduce this message. You can find us on the web at www.ntrf.org. May God bless you as you seek to follow Him in complete obedience to His Word. May your faith in the Lord Jesus be strengthened and your daily walk with Him deepened.